Hello, my name is Ho Jun Yoon. You're listening to Medicine on the Way. It is September 2013. This is episode number 20, and today's topic is spinal epidural hematoma. In previous episode, we covered etiology and pathophysiology of spinal epidural hematoma. We are going to continue on by starting with clinical findings of spinal epidural hematoma. Severe acute neck or back pain in the location of the hemorrhage radiating to the extremities is the typical finding of spinal epidural hematoma. Sensory and motor deficits, presis, flaccid paralysis with hypoflexia, bowel dysfunction, and urinary retention can be observed. The mean time from the onset to full clinical presentations is estimated to be 15 hours. In other recent studies, this progressive interval, however, varies from 30 minutes to 6 months. Based on the size of hematoma and the progressive interval, Reddy and Rao define four clinical courses of spinal epidural hematoma, and they are fast spread of classic hematoma, root compression syndrome of repeated small hemorrhages, organization of hematoma with recurrent small hemorrhages, and rapid symptom development with fever after transverse myelitis. There may be atypical symptoms before showing clear neurological deficits. A case of spontaneous spinal epidural hematoma was reported in Michigan from a 58-year-old who presented with flank pain and constipation. Without abnormal neurologic deficits, the patient was treated with analgesia and discharged. The patient returned with persistent pain and began to show weakness of extremities and paresthesia two days after the discharge. Another recent case from Vermont presented with a, an atypical chest pain. The pain was substernal, radiated to the left, infrascapular region, and pleuritic on palpation. With negative electrocardiogram and cardiac enzymes, the patient was prepared for discharge. Fortunately, leg weakness began just before the discharge and a hematoma was found from the imaging study. Here at all, stress clinical picture is less specific for pediatric patients. Rather than severe weakness or sensory deficits, abdominal pain or poor feeding are prone to occur. Magnetic resonance imaging or MRI is the diagnostic method of choice. MRI differentiates between disc hernia, tumor, infection, and hematoma and demonstrates the extent of the lesions. Hematoma can be described as long segmental fusiform axial mass, shuttle-shaped, crescent-shaped, strip-like, or dumbbell-shaped. Brown et al. explains the evolution of spinal hematoma from the MRI findings. In the hyperacute hemorrhage, iso or hypo-intense on T1 
and hyper intense on T2 images are seen due to intracellular oxyhemoglobin. A peripheral hypointensity may be observed because of the degraded blood cells. In the acute hematoma that is less than 5, uh, 35 hours, hypointensity or on both T1 and T2 is seen. As progressing into the early subacute hematoma, and that is less than 7 days, intracellular deoxyhemoglobins are oxidized into methemoglobin and T1 images become hyperintense. The late subacute hematoma, and that is less than 2 weeks, demonstrates hyperintensity on both T1 and T2 due to extracellular methemoglobins. The chronic hematoma that is more than 2 weeks shows hypo-intensity on T1 and T2 images because of ferritin within macrophages and paramagnetic hemocytorin. A study of 20 patients proves the changes of intensity on MRI images corresponding to those described above. Another study of 23 patients with spinal epidural hematoma also provides similar findings on the MRI intensity changes. The most common area of spinal epidural hematoma is posterior cervical and thoracic spine. These hemorrhagic locations coincide with the extensive venous plexus of the cervical spine and the narrowed spinal space of thoracic. Although the location of hematoma may vary based on the presenting location of pain, several clinical studies support the prevalence of spinal epidural hematoma in the cervical and thoracic spine. Sensitivity and specificity of MRI have not been calculated. Because the intensity of a lesion over the course of the hospitalization has to be evaluated in timely manner, other imaging modalities seem an inappropriate replacement for MRI. Computed tomography myelography is a potential alternative imaging study. CT may differentiate hyperintensity of hyperacute hematoma from the adjacent fatty osseous tissue. However, its sensitivity and specificity are poor. Periodically rotated and overlapping parallel lines with enhanced reconstruction, which is known as propeller, MRI with diffusion-weighted imaging can provide improved finding of acute uh, spinal epidural hematoma. Gadolinium-enhanced MR arteriography can further detect arteriovenous malformation. In addition, other blood studies including INR, prothrombin time, activated thromboplastin time, and platelet count may be required to confirm the diagnosis. Based on clinical presentation, following differential diagnosis of spinal epidural hematoma should be considered. Spinal tumor, dissecting aortic aneurysm, transverse myelitis, spinal epidural abscess, pathological fracture, prolapsed, intervertebral disc, anterospinal artery syndrome, spinal vascular malformation, and spondylitis. Spinal tumor usually results in chronic neurological deficits and a localized pain gradually progressing as the size of the tumor increases. Herniated disc in general presents with neck or back pain following dermatomal pattern. 
Spinal MRI demonstrates spinal degeneration. Gadolinium prov- provides strong enhancement of tumor on MRI. Infectious、uh, spinal diseases are to be considered with the presence of fever, leukocytosis, and elevated C-reactive protein. Spinal subarachnoid hemorrhage is painful but lacks the symptoms of paralysis. Lumbar puncture identifies bloody CSF. An inflamed cord with edema indicates transverse myelitis. Dissecting aortic aneurysm may resemble transverse myelitis, especially with its rupture to the vertebral canal. Signs and symptoms of cardiovascular symptom aid to rule out aortic aneurysm. Spinal subdural hematoma may be differentiated from spinal epidural hematoma by identifying epidural fat images and different hemorrhagic configuration. However, a clinical study of patients stresses the distinction between spinal epidural hematoma and spinal subdural hematoma is not obvious. Brown and all agree to this diagnostic challenge between spinal subdural hematoma and spinal epidural hematoma, but encourage to continue identifying epidural fat and dura mater to confirm spinal subdural hematoma. Surgical explorations and decompression of compressive lesion is the treatment of choice. Decompressive laminectomy is the most often preferred. Procedure for spinal epidural hematoma of all level of the spine. An alternative procedure for posterior cervical spine is laminoplasty. These methods provide quick and effective decompression and a long-term benefit of spinal canal enlargement. Dorsal exposure is necessary for all affected spinal portions in spontaneous spinal epidural hematoma and post-operative spinal epidural hematoma. Complete midline laminectomy with an attempt to preserve the facets is to be performed. Clots or blood can be either peeled off or evacuated. Although active bleeding is rare, bipolar electrocautery, strict hemostasis, and repeated washing with eye-selling controlled bleeding. Even though the consensus is a surgical decompression for spinal epidural hematoma, there appears to be some disagreements on whether the surgery has to be undertaken urgently versus emergently. Tarlov et al. conducted experiments in dogs with an epidural balloon and observed neurological recovery. The studies demonstrated that the recovery depended on the rapidity. Of motor deficits and duration, and the force of compression. Groen and Van Alphen reviewed 333 patients with spontaneous spinal epidural hematoma and found the interval of pre-operation was the critical factor determining prognosis. The study stated that the compression has to be undertaken. Within 48 hours after the initial symptom for those with incomplete neurologic deficits, and within 36 hours with complete deficits, Cripple et al. confirmed the fact early decompression was vital to result in a successful recovery. Their preoperative interval, which was less than 12 hours, was even shorter, 
and the worst outcome was accompanied with complete paralysis, loss of sensory functions, and urinary or intestinal disturbances. However, the analysis did not find the recovery was significantly affected by age, hematoma extension, rapidity of symptom development, and segmental localization. Lawton et al. analyzed 30 cases of spinal epidural hematoma. Prognosis after the surgery was determined by the degree of preoperative de- deficit. Only 25% with complete motor sensory loss showed full recovery versus 83% with incomplete motor function loss. Kibosh and Awad, based on their review of the Johns Hopkins series, discovered improved neurologic findings when decompression was undertaken within six hours of the onset of post-operative deficit. Decompression upon diagnosis of spinal epidural hematoma in the absence of neurological deficits has been also suggested. Interestingly, Borm et al. claim there is no correlation between patient outcome and surgical timing. However, the patients in this study were treated with the mean preoperative time of 17.9 hours. Without abundant cases representing the delayed decompression, this claim appears to be invalid. Fu and Rossier states preoperative motor or sensory deficits do not necessarily determine prognosis. This statement also is questionable because the conclusion of the study is based only on three cases. Liao et al. developed a treatment algorithm evidenced by previous retrospective reviews. The algorithm determined the need of emergent MRI in the presence of sudden onset of back or neck pain with spinal cord dysfunctions. Once spontaneous spinal epidural hematoma was diagnosed, each case was categorized into one of three treatment groups, emergent, urgent, and observation. The American Spinal Injury Association impairment scale and the time interval from the onset were used to categorize each case, and the outcomes were evaluated with NURIC grading method. By systemizing the approach to each case, the study could identify factors resulting in a poor outcome, such as complete spinal cord dysfunction, coagulopathy, greater extent of spontaneous spinal epidural hematoma, and a good outcome, including incomplete deficits and lower neuric rates. Okay, this is it for this episode. If this is your first time listening to my podcast, make sure you listen to my previous episode, which covered etiology and pathophysiology of spinal epidural hematoma. Thank you for listening. My name is Ho Jun Yoon, and this is Medicine on the Way. Pra fazer feliz a quem se ama